Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coming up on the science revolution, ADHD, are you a hunter in a farmer's world? Dr. Ben Strauss is here about rising sea levels and those in their path. I'll be talking about how men can avoid prostate cancer by leaving something out of their diet. And percolate, Coca-Cola, and Trump are in the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. Plus, don't miss an important tipping point in the rainforests. That's only two years away. Stay tuned. There is this narrative that attention deficit hyperactive disorder is a psychological illness, that people with it are broken, that it is a defect that it is a disorder. I mean, it has the word disorder in its name. But just think about this for a minute. The principal characteristics are three things. Three cardinal characteristics of ADHD. The first is distractibility, easily distracted. You know, Johnny is sitting in his classroom and there's a bug crawling across the ceiling while, you know, his teacher is talking. And and instead of listening to his teacher, Johnny is looking at the bug going, oh, what a cute distraction. Distractibility. Number one. Number two, impulsivity. You know, Johnny just blurts stuff out. Engage mouth before engaging brain. And number three, risk-taking behavior or a high level of need for stimulation in life. Late 70s, early 80s, when Louise and I were running this Community for Abused Kids, and then later when one of our own kids was diagnosed with ADHD, I wrote a paper about this in 1980 on on the Feingold hypothesis. I got to know Ben Feingold quite well. His book, Why Your Child is Hyperactive, had just been published in 1978, as I recall. Went out to San Francisco, met with him. My paper was published in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry. The theory that I came up with and my most recent book on this is ADHD, Hunter in a Farmer's World. The theory that I came up with was that these kids are not broken at all. And it's not just kids, by the way, it's adults too. I'm one of them. That these kids are not broken at all, that there is an ecological niche, a sociological niche, a practical in life niche, For people who are easily distracted, impulsive, and like risk. And that is what, in my opinion, sustained the human race for 300,000 years. When we were hunter-gatherers. You know, if a hunter is going through the forest looking for lunch, and they're not scanning their environment constantly, noticing everything around them all the time, they're going to miss that flash of light over there that's that bunny that's going to be lunch or that flash of light over there that's a bear that wants to make them lunch and they'll either starve or get weeded out of the gene pool. So distractibility is actually an asset in a hunting-gathering society. Similarly, if you're going through the forest and you're chasing the rabbit 
and suddenly a deer goes by, you don't have time to pull out a pad and a pen and say, let's do a risk-benefit analysis. Let's see here. Bunny, easier to catch. Deer, more meat. Which shall it be? And by that time, they're both gone. You have to make a decision and be engaging in it really before you even realize you've thought about it. And that's the definition of impulsivity is behavior precedes cognition. In other words, we we make decisions at an unconscious level and begin engaging in the behavior before at a conscious level we even start thinking about it. That's impulsivity. And then this need for a high level of stimulation. Well, you know, in a hunting-gathering world, somebody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I don't want to leave the cave. There's things out there that want to eat me. What's going to happen to that person? They're going to die, right? They'll starve. But somebody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, you know what sounds like fun? Going out there where there's things that want to eat me as much as I want to eat them and finding food, right? And, you know, beating the system, as it were. Outwitting the predators, Now, about 10,000 years ago, we switched, and not all of us, but what has eventually become the majority of us, switched from hunting-gathering to agriculture. There was a pastoral piece in there that lasted probably four, five, six thousand years that doesn't get much discussion, and that's a whole kind of tangent. But, you know, basically we went from being hunter-gatherers to being farmers. Now, if you're a farmer and you're distractible, you know, you're out planting things and a butterfly goes by and, oh, what a cute butterfly. I wonder where that, oh, look it, there's a, there's a, there's a tree over there with honey in it. I think I'll go gather. And you forget to plant those seeds, right? Distractibility would be a liability. You have to be able to focus, right? Farmers are out there picking bugs off plants, bug after bug, bug after bug, day after day, hour after hour, week after week, month after month, picking all those bugs off those plants. And you have to have a mind that's organized in a way to say, oh, that's just fine with me. So distractibility becomes a liability in a farming society. Impulsivity becomes a liability in a farming society. It's an asset for hunter-gatherers. It's a liability for farmers. Um, you can't you can't say, oh, that wheat grew really well last year, but that was kind of boring. Let's plant ragweed this year and see what happens. Everybody dies when the crop comes in and you can't eat it. You have to have patience. You have to think things through. You have to plan a year, literally a year in advance. One of the things I've noticed about people with ADHD is they have a hard time thinking even a year out. Right? Everything is now. Right? It's like living in the present constantly. Very Buddhist, but not very farmer. And then, you know, risk aversion. Farmers settle down. They live in the same place for years at a time. If they wanted to take risks, they'd leave. And, of course, that's what happened. I think that you had Europeans who came to North America and and a lot of more ADHD, and they settled up and down the East Coast. And then those who were the most distractible among them, the most ADHD among them, the most hunter among them, They moved out to the Midwest, and then the most hunter among them moved to the Rocky Mountains, and then the most hunter among them moved all the way to the West Coast, and then they hit the Pacific Ocean, and that's why we have Hollywood. There is, by the way, an association, a clear association. I posited this in my first book on this topic back in 1996, 
And it has now been demonstrated. In fact, Dr. Richard Silberstein wrote a paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal just three or four months ago, citing me as the source for this, suggesting that there is a positive correlation between ADHD and creativity. And it doesn't have to cripple somebody. I mean, Thomas Edison, for example, who I think is a classic example of somebody with ADHD, when he was seven years old, his school teacher told his mother that he would never learn anything and never amount to anything. And she told the school teacher where he could put it, and she became his teacher. He was home, homeschooled by his mother. She reorganized his life to give him a high level of stimulation and, a high, and, and allow his creativity to run wild. And he changed the world as a result of it. Ben Franklin, another, I think, classic example of, of ADHD. There's a bunch of them. And, and then we have to ask ourselves, you know, if roughly 10%, and it depends on whose numbers you're looking at. Some, some are saying 2, 3, 4%. Others are saying as many as 10% of our kids are diagnosable as ADHD. How does nature make that kind of a mistake? It's not a mistake. And back in the 90s, when I first was writing about this, I hypothesized that we would eventually find that there's actually a gene associated with ADHD. And that that gene would be found in large, you know, well-represented among indigenous hunter-gatherer people and would be less well-represented among people who had lived as farmers for thousands of years. And they have now identified, it's not just one gene, it's a, a number of them. They're all the dopamine genes, the, the DR, the, dop- the primary dopamine receptor genes, the D2 and the D4 gene, specific alleles, things that cause the gene to express in different ways are overrepresented and underrepresented in various populations. They've found this. I mean, my theory has now been demonstrated to be true. And what this does is it gives us the solution to, you know, what do you do about this? You know, little Johnny is distractible, impulsive, and likes to take risks, but he's in a classroom that was designed for farmers. Because the Industrial Revolution is just an extension of the Agricultural Revolution. Instead of picking bugs off plants, we're putting bolts on screws all day long. But it's still that same boring stuff. And so you got to get people ready for that. So you have this boring school that's really run like a factory where you break everything into little pieces, individual unique subjects, and you teach things in order and all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't work for a lot of kids. So what do we do? We give them drugs to turn them into farmers. How's that useful? They're going to be hunters for the whole rest of their lives. Now, I'll acknowledge there are some kids who have ADHD so severely that they can't function in any kind of school without some kind of medication. There is a small, and and I'm not sure that that's even necessarily real ADHD in those kids. And I'm not, you know, saying, oh, don't ever give kids drugs or adults for that matter. You know, I take drugs myself. I, I took a cup of coffee this morning. I had a glass of wine last night. These are drugs. We use drugs in our culture. Stimulants and sedatives. But before we start passing out pills to kids, shouldn't we be thinking about making our schools more hunter-friendly? I mean, isn't that a reasonable thing to do? Particularly now that we know that there's actually a positive correlation between creativity and ADHD? Why would we want to suppress it? Except for the convenience of the school system. 
So how does this play out in the lives of adults? It turns out that in our society, we actually have jobs that are really good jobs for people who are farmers. I mean, that's fairly obvious, the people who just want to put the screw on the bolt one after another, after another, after another, all day long, just standing there on the assembly line or on the office equivalent of same, you know, processing insurance forms or whatever it may be, you know, people who just have the ability to be there and focus and, you know, eight hours doing one repetitive thing after another. There's plenty of farmer jobs out there. But it turns out that there's also a lot of good hunter jobs out there. I mean, you need a little bit of both skills. But if you lean farther toward hunter, that's the investigative journalist, as opposed to the maybe the person who's in the studio just reporting the news every day. The person who wants to get out there and get into the dig into the details, that's typically the hunter. Uh, the, every investigative journalist I have ever known well, I think I could probably diagnose with ADHD. Detectives. Again, there's two different kinds of private detectives or police detectives, for that matter. There's the people who do the very careful, thoughtful book kind of work and research stuff. And then there's the people who like to get out there on the streets and just, you know, dig into things. So the advice that I think that we need to be giving to our children, now that this has gone from just theory to actual science, the advice we need to be giving to our children about, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up is, you know, obviously find what you're passionate about and follow it, but make sure that it's something that is never going to be boring or so difficult, so boring or so difficult because your brain's not wired that way, that you can't sustain it. You want something that you would love doing for a long period of time. For me, that was being an entrepreneur. I've started you know, a whole bunch of businesses in my life, and, and five of them have been successful. Four of them were quite successful. A couple of them failed. But being an entrepreneur was my thing. And now doing this radio program, radio and TV program. It's great stuff for hunters. And you know, I'm a member of that tribe. So, you know, tell your kids there are things out there and some of them pay really well. Again, among the entrepreneurs in this world, some of the very successful, very wealthy ones, you'll find a lot of hunters in this farmer's world. On the other hand, if your kid is a farmer, you know, direct them in that direction. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Dr. Ben Strauss, uh, President, CEO, and Chief Scientist at Climate Central. ClimateCentral.org is the website. You can tweet him at Ben underscore Strauss. Uh, Dr. Strauss, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So 340 to 480 million people. Basically, you guys have come up with, or this this uh, new estimate was published in Nature Communications, efforts to re- refine NASA's satellite elevation data, found that the number of people who will be at risk from global sea rise change as a consequence of global climate change is tripled now from previous estimates. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, you do. You want to elaborate on it? Almost the whole climate science enterprise has been focused on how sea levels will change in the future. And rightly so, that's hard to get. It's the ball that's moving and really impossible ultimately to predict with precision. But you need to know two different things to understand how many people are going to be at risk. The 
height of the future sea, but also the height of the land. We all tend to assume that we know the height of the land, but it turns out that we don't know that so well for large parts of the planet. <laughs> and past research that has done global assessments or assessments in many developing countries has relied on some elevation data from NASA collected by satellites, which provides what is called surface elevation data, meaning you get the height of the surface of the Earth that's closest to the sky, which includes treetops and rooftops. So on average, those elevations are really uh, well above the true elevation of the ground, and the true elevation of the ground is what you need if you want to understand the risk from sea level rise and coastal flooding. Our contribution was to develop, using machine learning, a form of artificial intelligence, a new elevation data set for coastal areas worldwide that essentially eliminated this average error found in the NASA data. And we discovered a great deal more people are living on a vulnerable land than uh, we previously understood. Remarkable. So our coasts are actually lower than we thought they were, or the land around them is lower than we thought they were. Now, this is just basically, you know, the sea comes up and it invades the land, essentially. And as we're seeing in Venice right now and in Miami Beach, and people can no longer live there and they have to flee and all that sort of thing. But that's happening as a consequence of melting ice. And a lot of the ice that's melting is in glaciers around the world, which feed some of the world's largest rivers. What's going to happen when these glaciers finally melt? Well, I'd say the um, biggest area of concern is looking at the Himalayas mm -hmm. and the rivers that they feed help to provide irrigation water and drinking water for probably well over a billion people in Southeast Asia. As those glaciers melt, we will probably see a period where the water supply actually increases because every year you have a freezing and snowing period and a melting period. But if the glaciers are stable, it means that on average you have the same amount of melt as you have snowfall. But if the glaciers are melting, you're adding that melt to the balanced equation. So there will be a period where water seems to be plentiful, but it will be followed up in the farther future by a period where the water supply is much less regular. There's a risk that people become used to having more water and then suddenly the water becomes quite unreliable as those glaciers dry up and then you're really subject to the whims of the weather each year. Was it a big snow year or a, a low snow year? That could be extremely dangerous. And then on top of that, as a consequence of global climate change, we find that precipitation events and wind events are becoming more extreme. So some parts of our country, some parts of the world are now experiencing as regular events, what used to be considered 100-year or 500-year floods, and other parts of the world as regular events, what used to be, you know, 100-year or 500-year droughts 
are happening for extended periods of time. We, you know, the west coast of the United States is in the five-year drought now. Guatemala, I believe the sixth year of a very, very severe drought, a multi-hundred-year drought, and it's one of the things that's driving some of the refugees coming to the United States. I'm assuming that that also is going to affect probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. Do we have any collective estimate of the number of people worldwide who are affected by global climate change integrating all these different effects? Well, I think if one simple answer is that we're all affected by global climate change in different degrees in different places, but really, uh, there, there, there's no place that is unaffected. We've simply changed the atmosphere and the climate for the whole planet where all of us live. You're also right to highlight that we will feel and we are feeling climate change most strongly in the extremes. And increasingly, we are able to detect a climate signal in specific individual extreme events. I should note that I think the jury is still very much out in terms of the Central American drought in Central America right now. I, I recently um, saw some research suggesting that it was within the range of natural variability. I don't know whether in a formal assessment or not yet and what that will show. But overall, we are definitely seeing an increase in extreme weather because of climate change and even small changes in average temperature or average conditions can lead to large changes in the likelihood or frequency of extremes. I sometimes think of it, imagine standing on the beach, perhaps as the tide is coming in and watching the waves wash up the beach towards your toes. And imagine every wave coming very close, an inch away, two inches away, but you never get wet. Wave after wave. Well, all you need is just a few inches of the tide coming in or a few inches of sea level rise, and suddenly you'd be getting wet with every single wave. So you, you can go from a situation where the events when you're affected or the extreme events are very rare to a situation where they're very common even by just a small change in the average. And that's really something we're seeing all around the world today. Remarkable stuff. Dr. Ben Strauss, the president, CEO, and chief scientist at Climate Central, climatecentral.org. Dr. Strauss, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me. Great talking. In this week's Geeky Science... A new study published by researchers from the Mayo Clinic found that men who eat a lot of dairy products have an increased risk of prostate cancer. So if you ditch the cheese and milk for plant-based foods, apparently if you're a man anyway, it'll decrease your risk. Lead author John Shin, a Mayo Clinic oncologist, said in a press release, quote, our review highlighted a cause for concern with high consumption of dairy products. The findings also support a growing body of evidence on the potential benefits of plant-based diets. American Cancer Society tells us that one out of every nine American men will get prostate cancer. It's one of the most common in the United States, and it has the second highest mortality rate of all cancers for men. Another recent study, by the way, found that eating three servings of mushrooms every week was associated with a reduced risk of prostate cancer. The benefits of a plant-based diet, though, don't stop there. Giving up meat and dairy have been recently associated with a reduction in type 2 diabetes and a healthy gut. Hey, it's time for the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. 
in the context of science. The good. The Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as the NRDC, for taking the FDA to court over perchlorate. Perchlorate has been shown to harm the development of fetuses in young children, yet the FDA chose to continue to allow this harmful chemical in food and packaging. It's also made in rocket fuel, and it's in some commercial fertilizers. Eric D. Olson, Senior Strategic Director for Health and Food at NRDC, says perchlorate harms kids and it's all over our food supply. The FDA has enough evidence of these harms and dangers to take action right now and its refusal to ban this toxic chemical was unreasonable. In 2005, the FDA allowed perchlorate to be in some kinds of food packaging. In 2014, NRDC and other public health groups fought back to try to undo that decision, but the agency denied the petition in 2017. This latest lawsuit is to require that agency to review that petition again. Olson adds, quote, The courts are absolutely key in blocking brazen Trump administration attempts like this one to ignore science and put people at risk for the benefit of private corporate interests. Good on you, NRDC. We should not be poisoning our children. The bad, Coca-Cola. According to a global audit of collected plastic trash conducted by the Break Free from Plastic Global Movement, Coca-Cola was announced as the most polluted brand in the world for the second year in a row. According to the report called Branded Volume 2, identifying the world's top corporate plastic polluters, the Atlanta-based beverage giant was responsible for more plastic litter than Nestle, Pepsi, and snack maker Mondela's combined. The next three on the list. Vice reported the plastic was counted during brand audits where Break Free from Plastic counted plastic litter collected in 484 cleanups in more than 50 countries on six continents in September. Von Hernandez, global coordinator with Break Free from Plastic Movement, says this report provides more evidence that corporations urgently need to do more to address the plastic pollution crisis they've created. Their continued reliance on single-use plastic packaging translates to pumping more throwaway plastic into the environment. Recycling is not going to solve this problem. It's very bad, as plastic creates all kinds of problems in our environment. And the very, very ugly President Trump. And no, it's not the way he looks. It's for confirming his administration will start its official pullout from the 2015 Paris Agreement now. Say goodbye to America being a leader in the fight against the global climate crisis. The withdrawal officially begins the first week of November. And as Reuters reported, Trump argued at a natural gas conference in Pittsburgh, this is part of his America first policy. Malik Russell, a spokesman for the climate mobilization, a youth-led environmental advocacy group, said this is really a betrayal of the next generation. And he's right. Alden Meyer, director of strategy and policy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, said President Trump's anti-science stance that climate change is not a serious threat to any meaningful action puts the profits of fossil fuel polluters above the health and well-being of current and future generations. And he's right. Meyer added, it also impedes the ability of American companies and workers to compete with other companies like China and Germany in the rapidly expanding market for climate-friendly technologies. Fortunately, he said no other country is following President Trump out the door on Paris. Yes, pulling out of the Paris Agreement is very, very ugly and puts America last, not first. In our science fact of the week, it now looks like the Amazon rainforest is just two years away from an irreversible tipping point. This is Tough News, delivered by Monica DeBolay, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. The tipping point is the deforestation of the Amazon where it cannot sustain itself. 
and the lungs of the planet could disappear, causing irrevocable damage to the planet and every living thing. Debolet tweeted, quote, the time for action is now. So the question, will we listen? That's it for today's Science Revolution. And remember, change begins with you. Tag, you're it.